My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History, episode 46, The Trial of the King, part one. Well, we have arrived. We are finally at the trial of the king. All revolutions have their key moments, their turning points, their highlights, and the trial of Louis XVI has got to be one of the most interesting events of the French Revolution. In this episode, we're going to explore how the deputies of the convention came to put the king on trial, as well as the debates as to whether he could and should be tried. We're also going to unpack the charges levelled against the king, his defence, and the rising number of popular disturbances which accompanied the developments in the capital. That will set us up nicely for part two, where a sudden plot twist will dramatically alter the trajectory of the trial. As always, Grey History is only possible because of the support of the listeners of the show, and so I can't thank enough those people who have been supporting the podcast in some form. A warm welcome to the newest members of the Patreon community, including the new Virtuous Citizens, Nerdsome and Jason. Also, a thank you to Rob for increasing his pledge, as well as writing in with some kind words of encouragement. It's a lonely job, this history podcasting. All my colleagues died 200 years ago. And so thank you to everyone who has taken the time to send a message on the website or over social media. Of course, a special call out to the amazing champions of the people, Cynthia, George, Brady, Tim, Mark, William, Laura and Daniel. Finally, thank you to the extraordinarily generous heroes of the revolution, Brian, Christy and Charles. If you find great history entertaining, if you find it educational, then please support the show on Patreon and help ensure it will be here for you tomorrow. For the price of just $2 a regular episode, for the price of just half a cup of coffee, you can do your bit to keep grey history on the air. And believe me, I need your help to make it so. Now, before we get into it, some other quick thank yous to make. Thank you to everyone who has left a one-off donation to the podcast, including Henry, who recently made an incredibly generous donation to the show. Also, thank you so much to everyone who has been leaving written reviews on Apple Podcasts, as well as those who have been sharing the show with others. This week, Grey History was the number one history podcast in Moldova, so hello to my friends out there, thank you so much for sharing the show, and to everyone else, there's officially a new benchmark. As a reminder, between now and the next episode, please make sure you tell at least one person about the podcast as I need your help to ensure Grey History can continue to bring you the history that you love in 2023. Finally, for those people that want more Grey History, both in terms of bonus content and the next episode, episode 47, The Trial of the King Part 2, is already available for those patrons on the True Revolutionary tier and above. That's the $5 an episode tier and above. So, if at the end of this episode you can't wait for more Grey History, Episode 47 is waiting for the true revolutionaries right now. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 46, The Trial of the King. Part 1. Gladiators in an arena. That's how one deputy described the National Convention in 1792. A convention consumed with combat, with duels, with unrelenting factional quarrels. And that analogy of gladiators in the arena is actually quite an interesting proposition. When I think of gladiators, 
I think of many things. I think of the Colosseum, of roaring crowds, of Russell Crowe. But I also think of the Emperor, holding out his hand above the arena, ready to determine the fate of a defeated combatant. Will he live or will he die? And this, I suppose, is the key difference between the gladiators of the past and the gladiators of the convention. Because in the past, the emperor was the sovereign power, and it was he who would decide the fate of men. But here, in the National Convention of 1792, roles were reversed. Here, the gladiators represented the sovereign power, and it was they who would determine the fate of His Majesty, King Louis XVI. Not that the deputies intended to be rushed. For a variety of reasons, some more contentious than others, the representatives of the nation had initially stalled the looming trial of the king. The motivations for this procrastination are disputed. Amongst those suggested by historians is the fact that deputies on all sides were fixated on the war effort, while others propose that the Girondins sought to prioritise their attacks against the Montagnards, who they perceived to be the more imminent and powerful threat. These distractions were convenient, however, for any possible trial would open up some very thorny questions for the deputies of the convention. Should the king be tried? Could he even be tried? And if he was tried, and if he was found guilty of crimes against the people, what should his punishment be? Banishment? Imprisonment? Death? With sympathy for the king remaining strong in certain corners of the nation, would his trial bring justice? Or would it bring unrest? Would a convicted monarch end an era of French monarchy, or merely create a new era of French civil war? When pushed to choose between the old regime and the new, between the king and the republic, it was clear the choice Paris would make. But what about the nation as a whole? For all these reasons, and more, the trial of King Louis was a battle some deputies, especially Girondin deputies, weren't particularly eager to fight. However, the less than enthusiastic eagerness of the deputies to place the king on trial was, ultimately, irrelevant. The status quo could not be indefinitely maintained. As long as the king remained unindicted, as long as he remained unconvicted, the revolution's very legitimacy could be questioned. The overthrow of the monarchy, the creation of the convention, the declaration of the republic were all built on the basis that the king had committed high crimes against the people. If he had, then surely he needed to be tried. If he hadn't, well, then it wasn't the king who acted against the constitution, but the revolutionaries themselves. Thus, the deputies eventually commenced preparations for the trial of the king thanks in part to vocal Montagnard advocacy in favour of the issue. In October 1792, two committees were established by the convention to lay the groundwork. One was created to gather the evidence required for a possible indictment, and the other was to investigate the issue of whether the king could be indicted in the first place. And here is where we arrive at one of the great questions the deputies had to grapple with in their quest to bring Louis to justice. Could the king even be brought to trial? At first, you may think this is a fairly straightforward question. Surely the king could be brought to trial, just like any other citizen. But Louis was not like any other citizen. The Constitution of 1791, a document famed for its contradictions, contained a rather interesting clause. Believe it or not, the constitution explicitly stated that the person of the king was inviolable and sacred. Furthermore, the constitution had taken the time to specifically itemise a range of very discrete sets of crimes and circumstances in which the king could be punished. 
These included things like leading an armed rebellion against the nation, departing the country without authorization from the assembly, and refusing to swear an oath to the constitution. However, in addition to itemizing a rather narrow set of possible offenses, it also named an even narrower form of punishment. Abdication. Not abdication and imprisonment. Not abdication and banishment. Not abdication and execution. Even in the case of placing himself at the head of an army with the intent to use that army against the nation. Even in that case, the constitution literally stated that his punishment was abdication. Thus, a very strict and very narrow reading of the constitution could be interpreted as stating that, as king, Louis had already been punished to the fullest extent, as he had already been forced to abdicate the throne. Beyond this, he could only be charged for the crimes he had committed as a citizen. Since he had become a citizen while in jail, and had spent his entire time as a citizen in jail, it was hardly the case that Citizen Louis had acquired a long rap sheet. And just to be clear, the Constitution once again explicitly stated that only after the king had abdicated could he be classified as a citizen and that he could only be accused and tried as a citizen subsequent to his abdication. So, this created one hell of a legal headache for the deputies of the convention. The Constitution of 1791 explicitly stated that the person of the king was inviolable and sacred. It explicitly listed a very narrow set of offences in which the king could be punished. It restricted the punishment to just one act, an act which had already been undertaken. And it stated in black and white that the king could only be tried as a citizen for the crimes committed as a citizen after his abdication. This was no small impediment to a trial. And it's why the convention created a whole committee to look into the matter of whether or not charges could even be brought against the former monarch. On the 7th of November, 1792, this committee delivered its verdict. It argued forcefully that the king could be tried. Yes, the Constitution of 1791 decreed the king's inviolability. But the sovereign nation, in the form of the National Constituent Assembly, had granted this inviolability. It was not some natural right. It was not some sacred and inalienable law. It was a privilege granted to the king by the sovereign nation. As a result, the convention, which now represented the sovereign nation and which had been delegated full constitutional powers as a constitutional convention, could just as easily retract that inviolability. Just as the nation had granted it, so too could it take it away. As the deputy Jean-Baptiste Mayer presented the committee's report, he told the convention simply, Citizens, the nation has spoken. The nation has chosen you to be the organ of its sovereign wishes. Here, royal inviolability is as if it had never existed. Justifying the committee's reasoning, Merler maintained that it was not the king's inviolability that was inalienable, but rather the sovereignty of the nation. As sovereign, the people could remove the king's inviolability and seek justice for his crimes. Mailer proclaimed, You represent the sovereignty of the nation. This sovereignty is inalienable and indivisible and cannot therefore be limited by the inviolability of the king. This inviolability would be a sufficient plea against all other authorities but it is impotent as against the nation. Now the nation demands vengeance and the punishment of the traitor. The vast majority of the convention agreed. As they had been empowered to represent the sovereign will, the issue of inviolability could thus be dealt with. But 
That was just the first issue. The next issue was how to actually try the king. Perhaps Louis should be tried in the courts, as any other regular citizen. But the courts were empowered by the Constitution of 1791, the very same constitution which also provided the king's inviolability. The creation of a special court or tribunal might have been a way around this, but such a process would inevitably have had its own complications and delays. With elements of Paris starting to become increasingly agitated by the delay in the king's justice, time was not something the deputies had in abundance. So it was proposed that the convention itself conduct Louis' trial. This course of action wasn't without controversy. If the legislators tried Louis themselves, they would be acting as the prosecution, the jury, and the judge. The Declaration of the Rights of Man explicitly stated the necessity of the separation of powers. And yet here, the convention was playing so many roles. Surely this was a breach of that principle. Such a procedure also violated the Criminal Code of 1791, producing further doubts as to the proposed approach. But, while these concerns were valid, the committee which had investigated the matter reiterated its belief that only the nation could try the king, and thus the convention had to determine the monarch's guilt. A court whether regular or special in nature, was not sufficient for the task. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms, or at History of the Second World War. In the weeks which followed, the deputies themselves began to debate as to whether or not the king should be tried. A very small minority continued to claim that the king could not be tried, pointing to the Constitution of 1791. These adherents to the principle of the king's inviolability remained very sparse in number, with the vast majority of deputies satisfied by the committee's earlier reasoning that they could try the king. Yet, in a fascinating turn of events, a second group of deputies came forward to declare that no trial should take place. But this group was not claiming the king's inviolability as they justified their demands for no trial. Instead, they argued that the king was obviously guilty, his crimes beyond doubt, and that, as a result, the convention should immediately proceed to the matter of punishing Louis for his treason. They should proceed immediately to the king's execution. The deputy who initially proposed this rather unique line of reasoning was a deputy for the department of Aisne in northern France, a certain Louis-Antoine-Léon de Saint-Just. So, it seems now is as good a time as any to start introducing some of the Jacobins who will rise to significant positions of leadership over the next two years. 
Senjust had just turned 25 when he was elected to the convention, meaning that he was the youngest deputy of the legislative body. An incredibly controversial revolutionary, more neutral observers would perhaps describe him as fiery and energetic, a blunt moralist firm in his convictions. A leading figure in the terror, his detractors would characterise him as almost inhumane, a cold-blooded fanatic whose warped principles earned him the nickname the Angel of Death. They're also keen to embellish his relationship with Robespierre, which critics liken to that of a minion following his master. Saint-Just's supporters would obviously reject the aforementioned depictions. Instead, they see a determined man of principle, a politician of virtue, a capable, intelligent and savvy statesman, one who guided the revolution through its monumental challenges and sought to ensure that the principles of the revolution were not endangered by sinister interests, including both counterproductive extremism and unwarranted moderation. A relatively balanced, although still critical view of Senjust can be found in the exceptional book Twelve Who Ruled by Robert Palmer. Palmer depicts Senjust as follows. This young man is one of the mysteries of the revolution. He shot briefly across it, his time of prominence lasting less than two years. A flaming personality whose youth had been anything but promising, but whose mature years, had he lived to attain them, might conceivably have rocked the world. He goes on to say, He was nevertheless a marked man. Every other member of the convention was older than he was yet he dominated most of them easily. Tense, alert, seemingly unruffled, cold and superior in manner, sometimes purposely enigmatic, affecting to be unmoved by the feelings that governed others, he behaved like one who thought himself above humanity and made his admirers feel the presence of a demigod. He resembled Robespierre, whom he had once worshipped as a hero, and came rather to patronise as a colleague. Robespierre was vain, Saint-Just was overweening. Robespierre was rather stiff, Saint-Just was inflexible. Saint-Just was a Robespierre drawn in sharper lines, more full-blooded, more impetuous, despite his impassive airs. A Robespierre without the wordiness, the indecision, the introversion, and the soul-searching, but also without the saving elements of kindness and sincerity. So, that's a quick introduction to Saint-Just. Although, rest assured, we will get to know him very well in future episodes. On the topic of introductions, it's in the matter of the King's trial that Saint-Just declares his presence on the revolutionary stage. Addressing his colleagues for the first time, Saint-Just argued that Louis was guilty, not of crimes he had committed as king, but instead he was guilty of the crime of being king. He declared that no one reigned innocently, and that every king was a rebel and a usurper, and that the king was not a French citizen, but instead an enemy and a foreigner. To put it simply, Saint-Just was casting aside accusations of treason and high crimes. Instead, Louis XVI's kingship was enough to justify his execution. His claim to rule over his fellow citizens was enough to warrant his death. And if the convention truly wished to found a republic, it must strike down the king and strike him down now. Historian Eric Hazen notes, His speech caused a sensation, as the speaker was a man of 25, who was previously unknown, and his tone, words and arguments were quite different from anything commonly heard. Saint-Just's speech was indeed both sensational and unique. Not only had the young deputy abandoned his earlier opposition to the death penalty, but his argument that the king should be put to death for the crime of kingship itself, without a trial, was extreme to say the least. His argument that the people 
in overthrowing the monarchy had already found the king guilty was praiseworthy to some, but to most, it was outrageous. And when you read Senjust's speech, you can understand why this speech was considered so radical. Here are three excerpts of this monumental speech. Do you rack your brains to discover proper form, to pass sentences on the ex-king? Do you attempt to elevate him to the rank of a citizen, that you may find laws applicable to his crimes? I, on the contrary, maintain that he is no citizen, that he should be considered as an enemy, that our duty is rather to crush him than to bring him to trial, that being altogether out of the contract which unites all Frenchmen, forms of procedure against him are to be sought for, not in the civil law, but in the right of nations. He went on to say, The act of reigning is itself a crime. It is a usurpation which nothing can excuse, which the people are culpable in allowing, and against which every man has a personal right to exercise vengeance. It is impossible to reign innocently. The wickedness of kings is too great to permit them to do that. We should treat such usurpation as kings themselves treat that against their pretend authority. He later continued, The men who are about to pass sentence on Louis XVI have to lay the foundations of a republic, but those who attach any importance to the just chastisement of a king will never be the founders of a republic. Again and again, Senjust rationalised his speech. He characterised Louis not as a citizen, but as a king. As king, he was a foreigner, he was an enemy, and he was guilty of violating the laws of nature. To Senjust, the only appropriate course of action was the king's immediate death. Rejecting the idea that Louis was a citizen, Senjust proclaimed that a trial was not only unnecessary, but unjust, for his crimes were beyond doubt. Furthermore, the people had already spoken on the 10th of August. They had already found him guilty. In a section of his speech that I presume must be a favourite for Roman history buffs, Senjust invoked the assassination of Julius Caesar as he rallied support against a trial. Caesar didn't have a trial when he endangered the liberty of Rome, so why should Louis? Senjust declared, Posterity will be astonished that the world is less advanced in the 18th century than it was in the time of Caesar. Then the tyrant was cut off in a full senate, without any other formality than 23 stabs of a dagger, and without the sentence of any other law than the liberty of Rome. But in the present times, we seek for forms of proceeding against a man, the assassin of his people, taken in the flagrant perpetration of his crimes. Senjust's speech was truly revolutionary, and I cannot stress this enough. To condemn Louis for the crime of kingship, without trial, was in fact so extreme that I struggled to articulate just how radical this proposition truly was. The rest of the convention was studying the legal theories as to how best to try Louis, whether the law even permitted his trial at all. And yet, here's Saint-Just telling his peers pretty much that they're all debating the wrong thing and that the only business to be done is to get on with erecting the guillotine. I must say, while I don't agree with it, it is a fascinating proposition put forth by the young revolutionary, a revolutionary now firmly on everyone's radar. But in arguing that the people had already determined the king's guilt and demanding the king's immediate execution, Senjust was not alone. On the 3rd of December, Robespierre lent his voice to the cause. Sharing similar convictions, Robespierre proclaimed the king to be guilty 
and demanded no trial. Robespierre declared, The king is not a defendant, and you are not judges. You do not have to decide in favour of a man or against him. What you have to do is to take a step that will benefit public safety, to adopt a measure that will safeguard the nation. The condemnation of the king could only strengthen the infant republic. The proposal that the king be tried at all, by whatever means, is a step backwards towards royal and constitutional despotism. It is a counter-revolutionary idea, for it puts the revolution itself in the dock. So, a growing group of radical Jacobins were making the case that no trial was necessary at all. Their proposal was simple. Execute the king and do so without delay. To do otherwise endangered the revolutionary project and questioned the legitimacy of all the actions taken since the overthrow of the monarchy on the 10th of August. Interestingly, not every radical Jacobin signed up for such a position. Even Marat, the famed journalist, known for his extremism, hesitated to adopt such a stance. It's at this moment that historian Jean Jaurès, who generally has no shortage of harsh words for Marat, paints a more nuanced portrait of the controversial revolutionary. In this case, Jaurès describes Marat as prudent, thoughtful, and eager to ensure that the deputies did not inflame the counter-revolution through their actions. Marat rejected the position of Saint-Just and Robespierre, insisting that a trial needed to occur. Supporting the recommendations of the committee to bring Louis to justice through a trial, Marat proclaimed that a trial was a necessity to educate the people on the crimes of the king. Marat stated, The gathering of evidence for his trial is the most certain means to finally deliver the nation from its most fearsome enemies, to terrify traitors, to root out every conspiracy, and to at last ensure the liberty, tranquility, and felicity of the public. Back in Marat, in his line of reasoning, were not only many other Jacobin deputies, but also some historians who were often sympathetic to the mountain. Historian Jean Jaurès, who was a committed socialist, essentially condemns Saint-Just's reasonings, accusing him of ignoring history and presenting clever but ultimately false arguments. The anarcho-communist historian Peter Kropotkin is also critical and praises Marat for taking the stand he did. As to the theory developed by Robespierre and Saint-Just, according to which the Republic had the right to kill Louis XVI as its enemy, Marat was quite right to protest against it. That might have been done during or immediately after the conflict of August 10, but not three months after the fight. Now, there was nothing left to do but to try Louis with all the publicity possible, so that the peoples and posterity might themselves judge as to his knavery and his deceit. So, if Saint-Just and Robespierre couldn't even get Marat on board with skipping a trial, a man accused by his enemies of instigating the September massacres, I shouldn't need to tell you that the duo were hardly carrying the convention with their reasoning. Throughout November, the deputies debated what to do with the king, and offered all sorts of justifications for their approach. Most proposed proceeding to trial, although their reasonings could differ. Some argued that it was wrong to interpret the king's inviolability as absolute, and that such a proposition violated the laws of nature. Others argued that the king must be tried for treason, just like any other citizen, on the rationale that the Declaration of the Rights of Man stipulated that the law must be applied equally to everyone. A very small but noteworthy minority did take up the arguments of Saint-Just and Robespierre, 
advocating for immediate execution on the grounds that the people had already determined the king's guilt. Some presented the intriguing argument that the laws of nature overrode the laws of the people. As the king had violated the laws of nature merely by his insistence to rule over others, the people had no right to try or pardon the king, but merely a duty to execute him immediately. Amongst these debates, an important development occurred on the 20th of November, a full week after Senjus's trailblazing speech. A hidden safe was found in the Tullery Palace, and when opened, scores of incriminating documents were found inside. Now, to be clear, there was no smoking gun, but the letters contained within included correspondence with aristocrats who had not only departed the country, but were engaged in the counter-revolutionary war effort. The letters clearly showed that the king deplored the constitution. In fact, he called it absurd and detestable. They also demonstrated that the king's acceptance of the constitution was neither real nor genuine. As historian Timothy Tackett notes, the letters obliterated the argument that a well-meaning king had simply been misled by corrupt and sinister advisers. Instead, these documents proved collusion between the king and the nation's enemies. As such, a trial was now inevitable. However, before we move on, there are two points to discuss about this famed iron chest. The first is that the documents inside shredded the celebrated reputation of a revolutionary giant. The letters within documented that Mirabeau, the champion of the people, the dog who would bite despotism to death, had in fact been secretly colluding with the court. Since Mirabeau's death in April 1791, way back in episode 20, the former aristocrat had been praised for his heroism and leadership. Now, he, like Lafayette, another hero of the revolution's early years, was regarded as a traitor. The contents of these letters and the fallout from this discovery will be explored in the episode extra for this episode. Which is of course your reminder that I desperately need your help to keep the show on the air, and with a tremendous amount of fantastic exclusive content and an ad-free feed, you won't regret supporting the show on Patreon. One of the important things to note from this discovery is that for a revolution already fixated with conspiracies and secret plots, the betrayal of a long-acclaimed hero stoked further distrust and suspicion amongst a group of revolutionaries already consumed by their distrust and suspicion. The second noteworthy point to discuss regarding this chest of secrets is the manner in which its treasures were revealed. In an act that I think can only be described as utterly foolish, the interior minister Roland decided to open the chest and read its contents without informing the convention and without having deputies of the legislature oversee the examination of its contents. As a leading figure of the Girondin faction, and as someone who had been expelled from the Jacobins less than a month prior, Roland was not some neutral player in the factional warfare which had recently consumed the revolution. Montagnard deputies and their supporters were incensed that Roland had examined the evidence without any oversight. In fact, they suspected that he had tampered with the contents of the chest, potentially suppressing incriminating evidence that Girondins had been in collusion with the court. Likewise, Roland's actions enraged many deputies in the plain, who regarded his unilateral examination of the evidence as improper and outrageous. The situation was made worse by the fact that their enemies suspected the Girondins of colluding with the court prior to the overthrow of the monarchy, and in fact some suspected them of seeking to prevent the king's execution. In recent weeks, Parisian radicals had even accused their opponents of deliberately stalling Louis's trial. 
in an atmosphere defined by suspicion, in an environment in which people perceived conspiracies to be abundant. It was a rather small jump to accuse Roland of manipulating the evidence to protect himself and those around him. Demonstrating how these events were being watched all over the country, an influential Montagnard in Lyon proclaimed that death was the appropriate penalty for anyone removing such documents. The convention may have been focused on the treason of Louis, but it's important to remember that as these debates played out, many revolutionaries considered Louis's treason to be just one of many. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States. How we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we enjoy today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end, starting with the events leading up to the war, including a look at the French and Indian War and pre-war disputes. We then go through the war itself and eventually reach the founding of a new nation based on principles of democratic government. Along the way, there are lots of great stories of both selfishness and sacrifice, some unbelievable human achievements, and some all-too-familiar examples of greed, self-dealing, and betrayal. Please subscribe for free to the American Revolution podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast. Great History needs your help to stay running in 2023. These episodes take between 40 to 50 hours to create, and at the moment, it's just not sustainable. For as little as $2 per regular episode, you can do your bit to help ensure Grey History is waiting for you tomorrow. You'll gain access to exclusive bonus episodes, along with the mini-episodes which accompany the regular show. There's also behind-the-scenes videos and an ad-free feed. Furthermore, those on the True Revolutionary tier get early access to new episodes. And episode 47 is waiting for you right now. So please, if you find Grey History entertaining, if you enjoy the show, I need your help to keep it going. For the price of just half a cup of coffee, you can be the change you want to see and help spread our message that history isn't black and white. After debating and rationalising the trial of the king, the deputies decided that they would, indeed, try Louis XVI. A commission was created to draw up the indictment, and the charge sheet which was produced was voluminous, to say the least. Reinterpreting a long list of events over the past several years, the document presented Louis's actions since the Estates General in such a way which proved his corruption, his treason, and his duplicity. Of course, Many of the actions which Louis was accused of, he had committed. Louis had resisted the calling of the Estates General, both in 1787 and 1788. He had planned to use force to forcefully disperse the National Assembly in July 1789. He had attempted to flee the country, or at least very close to doing so, during the flight to Varennes in June 1791. Perhaps most importantly, Louis had been secretly conspiring with the enemies of the nation, clearly breaking his public oath to uphold the constitution. These were just some of his many actions, which, 
along with broader revolutionary events, were presented as part of Louis's long list of criminal activities. Historian Simon Sharma points out that what was missing from this account was any sense of the violence or intimidation from the revolution's supporters over the last few years. But hell, they weren't the ones on trial. Had the Prussians successfully marched into Paris, well, I'm sure the indictment of the captured revolutionaries would have been just as one-sided, if, in fact, they had been granted a trial at all. I suspect that some might have received the Saint-Just approach. Anyway, I digress. The day after the King's indictment, the 11th of December, Louis was summoned to answer for his crimes. The events which followed surprised many. By many accounts, Louis, not exactly famed for either his public speaking or his backbone, put up a half-decent defence. The King denied vehemently that he had done anything illegal. For many of the accusations against him, he had a somewhat reasonable justification at hand. Some of the offences he was accused of occurred prior to the Constitution existing, and therefore they could hardly count as offences when he still maintained absolute royal power. In other circumstances, Louis noted that the Constitution rendered his person inviolable and sacred, thus using the document to simultaneously shield himself while questioning the legitimacy of the Convention's interrogation. In response to other accusations, the King simply stated that they were not his doing, but that of ministers or other public officials. And to be fair to Louis, there were some things he was accused of which were pushing the boundaries of believability and reasonability. For example, regarding the Champ de Mars massacre of July 1791, the King flatly and rightly proclaimed that what had happened had nothing to do with him. That massacre was after all the work of Bailly, Lafayette and the Parisian municipality. The flight to Varennes the month before may have been the catalyst for the demonstration at the centre of the massacre, but was the bloodshed really the king's doing? Furthermore, against attacks regarding his use of the veto to block controversial legislation, the king pointed out that the constitution had given him the right to do just that. Was he not acting in accordance with the constitution? Thus, for many of the accusations against him, Louis had a justification at hand, and some weren't entirely disbelievable. But his defence was by no means flawless, in part because he was by no means blameless. One low point in the trial came when the king was questioned about the written letters recently discovered in the palace. You know, the ones hidden in an iron chest which proved his collusion with the enemy. To this, the king pretended not to recognise his own handwriting, a moment which incensed radical revolutionaries, and one which is generally regarded by many historians as the weakest moment in an otherwise reasonable display from the deposed monarch. A monarch never known for his ability to hold a firm position, nor prosecute an argument. Now, What's particularly interesting here is the response that this hearing had on the deputies of the convention. Prior to this session, the deputies, to speak broadly, had been pretty hostile towards the king. In some excellent analysis, historian Timothy Tackett has examined the language used by the deputies in the run-up to the king's trial, and notes the word monster appeared more than 60 times in 102 speeches in early December. A considerable number to be sure, and perhaps one of the reasons why historian Heinrich von Siebel complains that the deputies became bogged down in endless yet monotonous insults without actually getting on with anything. But once they had commenced the trial, the tone undeniably changed. The king's defence seemed to have had an impact. Why is this the case? Well, it appears that the king's defence elicited sympathy from some of the deputies of the convention. One deputy wrote of feeling an involuntary sense of pity towards the former monarch, 
and it appears that such a sense was not confined to him alone. As a result, the convention voted to allow Louis to have a legal team for the rest of the trial. How very generous of them. Jokes aside, this was a significant development. The most radical deputies were arguing for the trial to be concluded within just days. In fact, they were actually arguing for no trial at all. And now, the king was granted a fortnight and a legal team. This development was by no means uncontroversial. Indeed, pretty much every decision resulted in the convention descending into disorder. The Mountain suspected efforts from the Girondins to protect the king, to prevent his death, and thus fought tooth and nail to prevent any motion seen to benefit the traitorous monarch. At the same time, the Girondins believed that the Mountain sought to kill the king merely to replace him with their own. Perhaps the triumvirate would rule, or perhaps the Montagnard-aligned Duc d'Orléans, now known as Philippe Egalité, the king's own cousin, would be installed in his stead. Needless to say, the bitter and venomous debates which had characterised the previous months remained ever-present, and each of the decisions surrounding the king's trial could prove the catalyst for a mixture of denunciations and accusations. However, despite the disorderly conduct of the convention, after the king's appearance before the body, a number of deputies were keen to ensure that the trial appeared to be fair and even-handed, especially given the special nature of the procedure where the convention was acting in so many roles. So, after the 11th, Louis was allowed to have some help. Louis's new legal team took up many of the king's arguments, and nearly two weeks later, on the 26th of December, they proceeded to make their case. Despite consisting of professionals, the king's defence team proceeded to argue much the same lines as those of the king himself. Depending on the speaker, they argued that the convention's inviolability clause protected the king from prosecution, they protested that the manner of the trial was contrary to the criminal code, and finally, they insisted that the king had actually done nothing illegal. One individual who assisted the king was a capable lawyer by the name of de Cez. In a piece of great legal theatre, de Cez addressed the long charges against Louis by reinterpreting the motives of the king, this time giving him the benefit of the doubt. Once the assumption of treason had been dispensed with, the king's actions of the previous years didn't seem so condemning. From this reading, de Cez was able to paint a picture of Louis representing law and order, upholding his constitutional duties, and most importantly, never seeking to cause his people pain. In reference to the bloodshed of the 10th of August, which, if you recall, was often perceived to be part of a royalist plot, de Cez forcibly rejected any accusation of the king's complicity. Of course, we know that the confrontation between the insurrectionists and the Swiss guards, which ultimately resulted in the massacre of the Swiss, was not a covert trap to kill true patriots. But, public opinion at the time held counter-revolutionary schemes responsible. It held Louis responsible. And indeed, the convention intended to hold the king responsible as well. Seeking to prove the king's innocence, de Cez reframed the events of the 10th of August, presenting Louis's actions as both legal and justifiable. Discussing the insurrection and the deployment of troops to defend the palace, de Cez claimed, Citizens, if, at this very moment, you were told that an excited and armed crowd were marching against you, with no respect for your character as sacred legislators. What would you do? You accuse him of shedding blood. Ah, he mourns the fatal catastrophe as much as you. It is the deepest wound inflicted on him, his most terrible despair. He knows very well that he has not been the author of bloodshed, though he has perhaps been the cause of it. He will never forgive himself because of this. 
The message was clear. Louis was innocent. To drive home the point, the king himself insisted on reiterating that he was not responsible for the bloodshed of the 10th of August. The monarch firmly told the deputies, I have never feared the public examination of my conduct, but I am deeply grieved to find the effusion of blood of the 10th of August is laid to my charge. The multiple proofs which I have ever given of my love to the people and my general conduct towards them appear to me sufficient to prove that I did not fear to expose myself to prevent the effusion of this blood and should forever relieve me from so foul a charge. Despite the hostility of many in the convention, the King's defence team did an alright job. While most deputies were convinced that the King's inviolability clause was not absolute and that the convention could conduct the trial itself, the King's arguments that his acts were legal had an impact. Well, they sort of had an impact. Amongst the convention, the deputies were near unanimous. The king was guilty. But outside of the convention, there was much less clarity. While the deputies themselves were convinced of the king's guilt, in the court of public opinion, that conclusion was a little less certain. Both of the king's appearances before the convention had bolstered royalist sympathies, and allies of the monarchy, including royalist publishers, saw an opportunity to promote their cause. Printed copies of the King's defence were widely circulated and royalist unrest started to manifest itself in January 1793. Most notably, a riot broke out on the 11th of January in the northern city of Rouen, where the participants cried, Long live the King. Some royalist sympathies were even seen in Paris, the heart of the revolution and the engine of its radicalisation. These sympathies, mixed with a growing concern that the deputies intended to attack the Catholic faith, fueled in part by both rumour and the radical suggestions of some in the convention. When combined together, these developments signalled trouble on the horizon. Some deputies had always feared how a trial would test the authority of the new republic, how the people would respond when forced to choose definitively between the new ways and the old. Were these royalist demonstrations isolated distractions, or were they the start of something more sustained, something far more dangerous? However, these pro-royal disturbances were not the only sources of agitation occurring throughout the trial. Paris, as ever, was by no means quiet. The initial delays in the king's trial had roused suspicion amongst the militant cohorts of the capital that a conspiracy was afoot to prevent the king from receiving justice. Just as the lethargic work of the Revolutionary Tribunal had raised questions of corruption, so too did the Assembly's sluggish pursuit of Louis's crimes. Furthermore, a series of recent Girondin speeches and actions increased speculation that that faction secretly harboured royalist sympathies. These worrying developments included disparaging comments towards the Revolutionary Tribunal, as well as calls to release all prisoners who had been arrested through irregular means during the First Terror. They also included the fairly ineffective punishments being carried out against royalist emigres, a responsibility that was in part attributed to the alleged royalist sympathies of the Girondin interior minister, Roland. When combined with the assembly's inexpediency in trialing the king, as well as memories of the Girondins' hesitancy to embrace the 10th of August and immediately dethrone Louis, all of these factors fueled rumours that the faction was secretly royalist. Furthermore, that they were not only working for the elites and the aristocrats, as claimed by their Montagnard opponents, but they were also seeking to save the king himself. 
The suspicions that a large faction in the convention was secretly colluding with the king may have been enough to create disturbances in the capital, but it was far from the only factor at play. In addition to this, developments outside of the halls of power were greatly fueling agitation and unrest. High bread prices, inflation, and shortages of basic commodities all increased restlessness further. The result was a similar situation in Paris to that which had accompanied popular demonstrations and disturbances several times in the last few years. Interestingly, the real-world issues causing such agitation, primarily hunger, were often conflated with the king's trial itself. One radical, a certain Jacques Rule, who we will get to know very well, spoke at length to a sectional assembly on the 1st of December about not only the king's trial, but also the pursuit of speculators, hoarders, and other forms of traitors. The hardship experienced by the people not only supercharged calls for price controls and severe government intervention in the economy, but fueled allegations that the king was also responsible for the crisis. Rumours once again swirled that aristocrats and counter-revolutionaries hoarded grain to starve the people, and some even claimed that food was being secretly relocated to the frontiers to assist the Prussians and Austrians upon their return. Interestingly, not only did the king's trial become conflated with the economic crisis and want of food, but so too did the suspected royalism of the Girondins. Their enemies had accused the deputies of cooperating with the court in an attempt to save the king, and their insistence on economic orthodoxy, their resistance to price controls and government intervention, merely furthered their image of the party which represented aristocrats and elites. The very same forces supposedly helping the king, and to which he belonged. The result was even more accusations of self-interested conspiracy against the Girondins. The radical journalist Hebert accused Brousseau and his allies of not only wanting to save the king, but of wanting to place his son back on the throne. With the young prince crowned, the Girondins would govern the country as regents. At least, that was their plan, according to the rumour mill. Combined with the consistent denunciations against the Girondins in the Jacobin Club, the end result of all of this, as just as there was pro-royalist riots in some parts of the country, Paris seemed to be on the verge of its own popular demonstrations. Ones not only against the monarchy, but against the Girondins as well. As the deputies grappled with what to do with the king, many in the convention were very aware of the mood in the streets outside. In fact, there is no shortage of conservative-leaning historians who suggest that the possibility of violence from Parisians influenced the trajectory and outcome of the king's trial. With the conclusion of the king's defence on December the 26th, 1792, you may be forgiven for thinking that the king's trial was about to come to an end. Certainly, there were some in favour for an immediate vote, particularly amongst the Montagnards, some of whom had argued against a trial to begin with. But that assumption, that the king's trial was nearly complete after little more than two weeks, would be wrong. For there was one last spanner to be thrown in the works. A giant one, in fact. In the wake of the king's appearance in front of the convention, the trial experienced yet another dramatic turn in events. It was evident that the convention would find Louis guilty, and it was more than possible that his guilt would result in his death. But that's assuming the convention determined what to do with the guilty king, and that's where things started to get a little crazy. For reasons that we will explore in depth in the next episode, leading Girondin deputies came forth with an unusual proposal. According to them, the convention should no longer determine the fate of the king. Instead, 
it should be determined by the people themselves. In what has come to be called the appeal to the people, the Girondins were proposing a national referendum. The people should vote on the punishment of the king. The nation should determine his fate. It was not the role of the gladiators in the arena to condemn the monarch. That right belonged to the crowd. Thank you for listening to episode 46, The Trial of the King, part 1. In the next episode, we'll explore the dramatic twist instigated by the Girondin deputies, the so-called appeal to the people. We'll also be diving into the historical analysis as to what was motivating the various approaches of leading members of the Girondins, the Montagnards and the Plain. A reminder that exclusive early access to episode 47 is available right now to Patreons on the True Revolutionary tier and above, and that will also grant you access to hours of bonus episodes and other exclusive content. Speaking of episode extras, in the episode extra for this episode, we're going to be covering Mirabeau's secret letters with the Crown, along with what historians make of his duplicitous dealings. As always, thank you so much for listening, and please support Grey History any way you can. The best two ways to do that is by supporting the show on Patreon, and between now and the next episode, telling at least one person about the show. In fact, just send them a message right now. Of course, another warm welcome to the newest patrons of the show, as well as a thank you to all the Patreons, including the amazingly generous heroes of the revolution, Brian, Christy and Charles. Thank you for listening, stay safe, and have a great day.